Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today from the frozen north, I welcome Kellen Flukiger. How are you, Kellen? Frozen. I'm just fantastic. Thank you. Glad (laughs) to be here. Where in the world are you? About 500 miles north of you. I'm uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, which is actually in the middle of Alberta. But the provinces up here are so big that it's like only in the middle, but it's frozen. Yes. (laughs) The only thing I know about Edmonton, Alberta, is that there's a big mall there. It used to, for many years, be the biggest mall in the world. And that was one of the big attractions. Since then, they built Mall of the Americas or something in Minneapolis that was bigger. And I don't even know if that's still the biggest. But I've been out there a number of times, and it is not difficult to get lost. There are wings and more wings. And there's an entire amusement park in one end of it. There's a full-size hockey rink in another end of it. There's a big pirate ship that's an attraction in the middle of it. There is there's like four amusement parks. There's a casino on one end of it. It, it, you know, and you'd think ends, except it's got wings. It is enormous. I bet you it's crazy this time of year. Haven't been out there. Don't know. (laughs) Well, I say this time of year, but we are recording this in December, but it actually will be April when we air this. So (laughs) so pretend like it's Christmas in April, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We haven't been out to West Ed uh, this year because we just haven't been anywhere because of pandemic stuff. And so I don't know if it's crazy out there. It would normally be like in regular years, it would be uh, utter madness to the max, but I don't know in this year. Yeah. Well, without giving too much away about our conversation, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what kind of work you do and who you are. So the the Kellen today would be way different than the Kellen 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, Today, I'm a coach. Uh, I'm the ultimate catalyst for personal transformation. I help people literally do the things they don't believe they can do. I have one purpose and mission, and that's to help 10 million people discover, develop, and manifest their divine nature and gifts. I don't say that number as to impress anyone. It is absolutely the goal, and it is the floor, not the ceiling. 
And so I have podcasts like you do. I have books. I have coaching. I have YouTube channels. And I'm in very intentional. And that's really all I do from the moment I open my eyes until I close them at night. That's great. So how did you get into being a transformation coach? Tell me a little bit about that journey. So that was a gigantic transformation. I got into being one because I went through one uh-huh. for the first Well, I was raised in a fairly strict religious home where the discipline today would be felony child abuse, Mm -hmm. and uh, we would have been removed from the home. Uh, uh, The the thing I really took away from that, I remember in high school, like getting dressed last in the locker room because I didn't want anybody to see I was black and blue, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I started experimenting with drugs as an escape when I was 13. Uh, It left me that that sort of environment left me with the absolute conviction that I wasn't good enough and never would be. Mm. And I, instead of like getting out of the house, I left home when I was 17, but I believed that I wasn't good enough and that I was the root of all things. So I spent the next 35 years from 17 to 52, trying to prove to my mother principally that I was okay Mm. and get her approval. What that meant is I struggled for 40 years from 13 to 53 with depression I never talked to anyone. I never shared anything I was going through. And I rode this roller coaster of gigantic achievement. And by gigantic, I mean making millions of dollars, high profile positions. I testified before Congress, had a contract with the Queen of England, C-level positions in the United States and Canada and in the C-suite. All that stuff, blah, blah, blah. On the outside, it looked like this. Uh, Behind the scenes, I had different bouts in rehab, in and out of rehab, drug addiction. I was married and divorced three times. I hated myself completely. I believed with all my heart that I was the root of all the problems that everybody associated with me had. I truly believed that. And I buried myself in the one thing I knew how to do, which was make money. Mm-hmm. So I got all these positions and blah, blah, blah. And then I would sabotage things and then I would create even bigger success and sabotage that. And, you know, and I just rode that roller coaster of utter madness, complete secrecy. I remember saying to myself, I don't even know what I feel like. I can be anybody you want, right. like a method actor, an alias or a legend. I can be anything you want. But 100% straight up when the lights would go out and I was alone. So I don't know the frick I am. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know. I, I don't feel anything. Yeah. So at what point, at what point did you kind of identify or self-identify with being depressed or did that happen at, you know, at 53, 54, or did you somewhere along the way, did you notice that? Three or four years, I had a divine intervention in 2007 that changed everything. Two or three years before that, I was married for the third time. I hadn't separated and get divorced yet. I remember speaking to my then spouse about the fact, saying, I think I'm depressed. Um, I felt left out. I felt, you know, behind things. And that was, I had, you know, I, I, I was big dog, this, that, and the other, but I shared with her that. And that was the only thing. I said, and she never, you know, it's like, so what? Go see somebody or do whatever. And I'd spent so long hiding that I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I did identify that in 2005. Shortly thereafter, we separated and that ended up in my third divorce. Um, so that was the only time I ever even said anything to anyone about that mm-hmm. and used the word depression. So were the drugs that you were using, were they uppers or were they downers or what were you using? My real addiction was to self-loathing. The chemical compounds that I used mostly, my favorite, I guess, was cocaine. Uh, was a, I had at one point had a $3,000 a week addiction uh, and I was making so much money that that was lunch money mm-hmm. um, and alcohol a lot. But I used every drug I could get my hands on because the goal was to be numb. I didn't care what it was. Right. 
Well, one of the things that I have learned in life um, by being in a trauma hospital is that so much of so much of addiction is based out of trauma in your life and and trying to numb that out, like you're saying. So mm-hmm. so if you're you know addicted to self loathing, of course that is creating that need to numb out, right? Absolutely, and I was a poster child for that. And I don't think anything ever would have happened. I think I would have, I attempted suicide twice. I failed not because of lack of effort, but because God had other plans. And if, if that hadn't happened to me, what happened at the end of 2007, uh, you know, there, w- there was no chance of trajectory change. I just would have uh, eventually barreled into oblivion. Right, right. What kind of, uh, you said you were raised in a conservative religious home. What kind of um, faith tradition were you in? Well, it was a Christian faith tradition. Uh, I I don't, the, the name of the church isn't really important because I don't want to try to stigmatize any religion or church because it wasn't the doctrine. It was my mother's enforcement choice that there were no alternatives. It had to be this way or that way. So I don't want to say, you know, this church is somehow that because I remain very faith oriented and have strong faith in the divine today. And I'm very active in church. And some people have asked me, gee, you know, with that kind of stuff, it would drive you away from God. And the answer is no. Uh, It, I understand that the way that it was understood, applied, and something had to do with you know, my mom, she got married young. She didn't know how to raise kids. My older sister got it just as bad as I did. She got physical beatings that I witnessed. And I'm, and I remember thinking at the time, she's a girl. Like if you're beating me, at least I'm a boy. And I realized we don't talk like that anymore, but it was, I couldn't even understand it. I thought, I couldn't, couldn't understand it. But my mom grew up because there were three older kids and three younger kids. And the three younger kids, when they read Tightrope of Depression, which is the book that I wrote about just my own experience, I didn't write it as a railing bunch of accusation. They read it and didn't believe it. They said, this didn't happen. Right. This is not true because my mom grew up somewhere in there and changed who she was being and, you know, used a completely different way of doing things. And there was kind of a you know, many years separation. I left home about the time the last kid was born. And, you know, so, so the last three, big, yeah, they didn't, they didn't even know that this happened and they right. can't like my, one of my sisters chewed me out. Why did you say all this stuff? You know, are you trying to something or are you trying to blame, you know, our mother for your evil, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, we have in common uh, a somewhat tyrannical mother and um, the the being raised in the church. And people people would ask me that all the time. How did you go on to serve the church and work in the church and be a part of the church when the church failed you? I'm like, no, people failed me. But God was still God somehow in the midst of that. And it sounds like you were able to retain that separation also. I just felt like this has got nothing to do with God. All this stuff I'm learning is probably true. I'm just not able to do it. I can't. Something's wrong with me, not not, not the doctrine. And I knew that it wasn't okay. I remember thinking as a kid when my mom would beat me that I wished I would die. I remember wishing I would die at those at the hand of that because then I thought then she'll get in trouble because the idea of going to get help at the time, you know, you just didn't do that. Oh. Right. That was not on the table, not an option. And so I'd never considered that, but I do remember wishing I would die at the hands of the uh, beatings because then I thought then she'll at least get in trouble. Mm, Callan, I've had the, I've had the same experience, the same, the same thoughts. So, um, so tell me what was, what was the pivot point? Where did everything begin to change? begin and end on a Friday in August of 2007. I came home from my high powered big dog job with a pile of thousand dollars, $2,000 worth of cocaine ready to, you know, party for the weekend. And 
I was getting ready to go out on Friday to binge for the weekend. I had 10 kids, four teenagers were living with me at the time. I was single again for the third time. Some of the kids were grown up and gone. Three of them lived with one of my exes. I hate to say that because it sounds so gross, one of my exes. But anyway, um, four teenagers were living with me. I was getting ready to go out party for the weekend, and I had an urge to turn on the TV. Now, that may not sound like anything, except I didn't watch TV. And when I went to turn it on, I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. I mean, I'd had the local electronics guy come in and put in the biggest flat screen, everything in the world that you could have, because that's what you have when you have, you know, all this money. Right. But I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. So I had to ask one of my kids, how do you turn the TV on? And they looked at me like, what? <laughs> so one of my daughters turned the TV on and threw the remote at it and then stomped out of the room. And it landed on a television show, which I'd never heard of. But that's not weird because I hadn't heard of any of them. Uh, called Intervention, which is a reality TV show about families who stage interventions for loved ones who are in trouble. And I watched about 10 minutes and the protagonist was a high ranking executive with a cocaine problem. And I thought, OK, this sucks. I'm not watching this. So I turned it off <laughs> and stomped around the house some more. And then I was just getting ready to go out and I just had to turn the TV back on. Now, this time I knew how. So I turned the TV back on and that show started over in the middle of the hour. And no, I don't have a DVR and no, it wasn't on the schedule and no, it can't do that. But it did. So it scared me. And I thought, OK, so I watched the show. It didn't go well. The guy refused all help, yelled at his family, stomped out. But it scared me bad enough that I didn't go out. I went to bed. When I went to bed, I went to hell. What I mean by that is I went somewhere. I don't know how or where, but the entire parade of my life went before my eyes slowly, not like a flash, but all of the situations and circumstances. And it wasn't yelling or accusatory, but it was just this play of my life and all the pain and suffering that had been accompanied all sides, just all of it. And I felt I've never felt anything so awful. I felt um, just awful. The whole thing was the most intense emotional suffering that I experienced. And after some undetermined period of time watching all this, a voice said, it is enough. And it wasn't yelled or anything. It's just, it is enough. So <clears throat> I woke up and it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So it had been nearly 18 hours. Oh, wow. That I was uh, somewhere. I got up and I realized that I'd been invited to change my life. So I got up and I threw away all the drugs that I had and I stopped cold turkey, $3,000 a week to zero in one day. That was the end. But that was just part one because that got me sober, but I didn't do anything about the depression and everything I didn't feel, which got me to that point. That second half of the divine intervention took place two weeks later uh, because of the positions I was in. Um, I used to get free stuff. Think of CEOs, get free tickets to this and free expensive bottles of whiskey and you know all that sort of stuff. So one of the things I got was a pair of tickets to see Yo-Yo Ma, which if you know classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, you don't. But he's like, oh, you know, the great cellist. Yeah. So anyway, I was single again for the third time. And I didn't want to waste the other ticket. So I said to the people that all the groups that I work for, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, uh, no. And I said, OK, fine. See you there. So I gave her the ticket. We met at the show and halfway through this feeling came back over me. And now this is two weeks later. I'm two weeks stone cold sober. But I recognized the feeling is this otherworldly thing from two weeks before. And this voice said in my head, you need to marry this woman. <laughs> I said, you're crazy. I failed at that three times with some other garbage in between. I said, that's not happening. I mean, I, I, wires crossed something. So later that night, we were backstage because they were backstage passes, of course. And so then that voice came back and said, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I argued like crazy, like I thought. And was this somebody that you had known previously? Well, she worked in one of my groups, so I knew her, but like, you know. Coworker. Yeah. Yeah. I knew. Well, I knew her, but not very well personally. Right. 
I had no personal relationship with her at all. Just somebody that worked in one of my groups and very, you know, had a good job and was a project manager of multiple projects and whatever. It's just one that said, I like classical music. So I argued again, thinking, you know, she could sue me. This could be sexual harassment. I mean, come on. And uh, you don't win those arguments. So I did. And it went about like you would have expected. You're <laughs> crazy. Well, like, what are you talking about? But she didn't go to the call the cops and she didn't uh, do anything weird. And about and within about two weeks, she had her own set of experiences and she resigned. And I walked away from the entire, not just the job, but the entire career into the sunset together. And that was 14 years ago. And she was the angel that was sent to help me face and deal with this depression that I had never talked about before. Wow. It's the only sane person I've ever invited or attracted into my life. She was relentless in finding me help, even though I've asked her a bunch of times, like all you people in the office, you knew I was doing something. You didn't know what, but you knew I was like on drugs and stuff. What on earth made you quit and walk away into the sunset with a loser? And she said, I don't know. I just knew to the core of my soul, it was the right thing to do. Wow. Al, get this. And her name is Joy. Like, you can't make this <laughs> stuff up, right? No, you can't. Okay. So that changed everything. And the, it wasn't easy. I mean, the first three or four years were a struggle. I didn't know how to tell the truth. I didn't know how to feel anything. I didn't know how to be with a person. I didn't know how to have a friend. I didn't know how to be a friend. I didn't know how to have a relationship that meant anything. It wasn't based on role playing and everything else. And so that was, you know, that was what we did. And so I, how did you, how did you begin to open up and, um, and let her know who you really were when you hadn't done that before? Um, it was a long and slow process. There were some ups and downs. Uh, I, I would try to be like <clears throat> the person I, I like the first thing I did is when I resigned, I resigned before she did. Uh, and this was kind of when we decided we were going to be together in that two week period, I went into her office and I shut the door and I said, look, uh, I don't know who you thought I was, but I just quit. So you might want to rethink this whole thing. So I gave her the opportunity to just, you know, back out. Right. And she looked at me, she looked right in my eyes, said, I'm in. And that was the end of it. Right. And so how, a little at a time, like the first two years of the counselor, I didn't even know how to tell the truth. I lied in every session. I psychoanalyzed myself. I would say stuff and then try to explain that I already understood what I needed to understand from it. And I imagine the counselors just shook their heads. You know, I went through three or four of them because I didn't feel like anything was changing. And I'm sure, you know, some I like better than others, but it, you know, I, I wasn't participating because I didn't know how. Right. right. And so it was it was a lot of work, a lot of trial and error, a lot of exploration, a lot of finally learning to tell the truth, be vulnerable, realize that I did need help. You know, the first counselor took about three or four sessions to say, I'm surprised you're still alive. To me, it looks like you have been suffering from MDD for 40 years. Right. Like, period. I, he said, I can't Absolutely. figure out what in the world, how come you're still breathing? Right. And so we talked and, you know, it, gradually over time, I learned to tell the truth. I learned to be a friend. I learned what love was. I learned something about unconditional positive regard. I, I've never experienced any of that. Love was always conditional. And if you do this, then that. You know, I, I had to relearn how to be a person at 52. Well, I'm curious, how would Joy describe those first three years? I think she would describe them as a roller coaster ride, an adventure. Like she just, she felt like, and we've talked about this, she felt called. And like, she wasn't even particularly religious. Her father had passed away two years before that. And she'd been studying Buddhism and it was going to a Buddhist temple and doing a lot of meditation and stuff. And 
you know, something about her spiritual preparedness. She felt like this was a calling. And so she fumbled through it the same as I did. Yeah. We felt yeah. called to do this. And that's all I know. So in the midst of all of this, uh, you have this background in uh, abuse and uh, addiction and negative regard in regards to faith. Where Where is your faith at that point? Is it active or is it something that was part of your history? Both. It was both. It was very much part of my history. I had long since been disinvited from the Christmas card list and the family. So I've kind of disowned. Nobody called or talked to me except my older sister, who was the one who had it worse or the same as I did. Mm. So she knew. She understood. She got it. And I, you know, her life has been a wreck. She's never had a relationship. She's never been married. She has struggled with self-esteem and uh, bodily shape, weight issues, overweight, lots of problems all of her life and fought like crazy to get herself. You know, she eventually got a PhD and went and taught at university. So she's done good stuff, but she's had to fight like everything to, to be sane and to be okay. And I didn't even know any of this until later, like all these years going by and reading and working and being with people that are helping me and everything else. Now it's easy for me to see, but at the time it was just, what was going on. Right. Right. So everybody had kind of disinvited you from the Christmas card list and you kind of were an Island unto yourself, huh? Completely, completely. And there's, you know, there's still uh, some of the sibs that are mad people that don't believe what I wrote in the book. You know, I, some of my kids, I've still got kids that don't talk to me because of the divorces and addictions and stuff. And um, I've got one daughter who still, you know, screams at me that everything wrong in her life is my fault. And mm -hmm. th for a long time, that was a real pain for me because it used to be that it was my fault, my fault. If I'd done better, we'd have this ideal family that I always thought we'd have, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, again, part of this work is realizing that if I allow this baggage to if I keep those rocks in my backpack, the only thing it really does is prevent me from loving and serving other people. Absolutely. It doesn't increase the likelihood of reconciliation. It doesn't increase anything. So the best I can do is be the biggest beacon of light I can be full of love and let God and time reach into and soften their hearts, which I had no like I breathe will happen. Yes. So how, how do you get past the, um, the fears of writing about your, your childhood and your upbringing and, and just kind of let all that out? How, how does that, how is that writing process? Well, time, the first five books I wrote were five books on meditation, the five volume series, because that's the thing I turned to right after um, I started, ch you know, change. I thought, what can I do? I can learn to help people. And I began to formulate the, the idea of coaching and meditation had been something I started when I was young because of martial arts, which I loved. And so I, I did that. And the next one I wrote was Tightrope of Depression, which was the story of the life. And so when I started writing it, I was scared to death. After I finished it, I waited a year to publish it because I was afraid. And so I sat on it and waited and didn't, you know, I, I lost sleep. Uh, I was scared to death that, you know, both in the professional world, people that knew the power that I had decisions that I made, which still were in effect in places that cost billions of dollars and all kinds of stuff. I, I just was afraid of these ghosts that, you know, somehow would happen. And a few of them did. I was invited to speak at an industry conference as a keynote speaker at a particular place and someone with another one of the companies published an anonymous YouTube video uh, saying, Oh, he, this, and that saying a bunch of stuff. And I had a friend who was on my side and he did a little sleuthing and found out who did it and posted, a, he posted a rebuttal video uh, 
identifying the person in the company and all of a sudden that person and their social media account, everything just evaporated. Mm -hmm. So that company got scared and took everything down and he did it without permission. So, so a few of the things really happened, but not most of them. The answer is you just have to decide it. You do it. I mean, I wrote the book for three reasons. One, I needed to, two, I was hoping that someone else who had part or all or more of the things that I had, had or was going through would see it and say, you know what, it's never too late. And the third reason was I, I was hoping that maybe people who were caregivers of people who were busted like I was might see something and get some insight into, sure. you know, what's going on. Sure. So tell me about the books that you, that you've written. You said the first three are on meditation. Uh, the first five. So there's a five volume series on meditation. I just put out the second edition of those. That was 10 years ago. So the second edition of those. Yeah. And the third, or the, after that, I wrote Tightrope of Depression, which is about me. And I believed, I hadn't ever intended to be an author. Really? No, I wasn't an author during any of my executive time. So I wrote Tightrope. I don't have uh -huh. meditation books here at hand. But anyway, I wrote Tightrope and think, thought I was done. I'm done. The minute I got done, I realized I'm just getting started. <laughs> so then I wrote volume two, which is down from the gallows, uh, which talks about the ongoing struggles. It's going to be a trilogy. Volume three is outlined and ready to go, but I'm not going to publish it till the end of next year. Uh -huh. uh, so that's three. And these, I also composed an album of music of 11 songs, each telling the stories really? of, of those. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote a book called The Results Equation, which is a business book about how to make things happen and get stuff done. And then I wrote a book called The Story Arc, uh, uh -huh. which is about how to write books and how to create courses and how to turn your personal story into how to share it, how to tell it in a way that matters, how to connect with the right people and how to do that. This is really fun. This is a labor of love. I run workshops three or four times a year with small people, like six people in them, helping them write books or create courses from their stories, like teach them how to do that because it was such a work, well, such a work for me. Maybe I need to me. sign up and I can actually finish my book then. <laughs> well, if you're interested, I don't, it isn't a big part of my business, but I do about three or four of them a year and they're 90 days long and they're, they're small. They're like five or six people in each one. I keep them small on purpose because I, I give a lot of individual attention because mm -hmm. my goal is to have people finish, not just have them be in the course, but to get right. it done. Right. So if you're interested, you can reach out after me to me afterwards and there'll be a couple, three or four of them next year sometime. Yeah, cool. Now you didn't tell us the name of the meditation books. The, for, the volume number one is Meditation, The Amazing Journey Within. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know in the right order, but one of them is Meditation in Health, Healing and Wellness. And the other third one is The Power of Meditation in Personal Achievement. And one is The Power of Meditation in Learning and the Creative Process. And the fifth one is The Power of Meditation in Developing Your Own Spirituality. Mm -hmm. So those were so five what, parts. What is the power that can be found in meditation? Well, <clears throat> You know, some people swear by a particular style, sit a certain way, say a certain thing, mantras and sounds and this and that. All those things are fine. We don't meditate to get good at meditation. We meditate to get good at life. And meditation is a tool. And so I distill it to three things. One is learn to slow down enough to be where you are. Mm -hmm. We are always, almost always somewhere else or some when else mm -hmm. in our minds. Yesterday, last week, tomorrow, what's coming, we're just not here and now. And so the first thing is just learn to slow down enough to be here where you are. And that's a fantastically complicated thing if you've never done that. Yes. Right? You learn yes, to sit absolutely. and be still. And you can use your breath, direct it to your breath. Some people teach that. A sound, you can use body scan meditation where you direct your consciousness to different parts of your yeah. body. And I outline five different approaches to meditation in volume one, just to introduce them. You can try this, you can do this, this. And I, one of the albums of music I've I'd done, it's on Amazon, was an album of meditation music. Uh, you know, that 
so that's to help, you know, some people like guided meditation. I did the meditation music with just music, and then I did it with music and spoken word. Uh, <clears throat> I used to use those today. I don't use anything because I've had decades of practice and mm -hmm. I prefer nothing. Right. But anyway, so that's part one is just slow down enough to be where you are. Part two is be still enough to notice what is there. And what I mean by that is there are things going on that we all miss all the time. Yes. And until we slow down enough to be where we are, we won't hear them. Divine things, with the exception of a few two by fours like I got, maybe a thick, <laughs> thick headed or whatever. But for the most That's part, funny. I call myself a two by four Christian also. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we share that. Um, they're mostly still and quiet, and you've got to be still enough to notice yes. what is there. And that begins to come, and you know, you start thinking, feeling, wow, this is here, and this is, and you start hearing, and they feel different. They don't feel like the intruding thoughts that you start with when you're trying to slow down, right? right? I got to pay this bill. My foot itches. It's too hot. What am I doing? This is stupid. I'm doing this wrong. What's going on? Why am I doing this anyway? Is five minutes up yet? You know, all that stuff goes on when you first start doing this. And eventually when you laugh enough about that and you just relax and you start noticing intuition and inspiration that comes. So that's part two is be still enough to notice what is there. And part three is trust. What comes to you is truth. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really doing, you're, you're doing two things in meditation, whatever style you do. Number one is you are learning to direct your thinking, which most of us don't do and don't know how to do. And the second thing you're doing is developing your connection to intuition and the divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are the two goals. Meditation, learn to direct your thinking and learn to develop your intuition. And you're right. It is a practice. It's not an event. It's a practice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Meditation, meditation doesn't come naturally for, for people. And especially for those of us in the Western world that are taught such linear, high driving, um, yeah, blocked thinking. The next, uh, absolutely. So there's those and the business book and the story arc and the trilogy of tightrope. Then um, <clears throat> three years ago in June, I died. Mm. If all of that wasn't enough, uh, Joy and I took a cruise and went uh, to the Baltic Sea. And I got uh, came back and <clears throat> I got sick and went to the hospital. And it's a longer story than that. But I I, I was in the University of Alberta uh, ICU and uh, my heart stopped. I died. I had a fatal illness mm. that they told me afterwards that the mortality rate. Like COVID, we talked two to three percent mortality. Mm -hmm. Mortality rate, the ten-day mortality rate of the superbug. It was a superbug infection resistant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, MRSA, MRSA. I had it in both lungs okay. and in my bloodstream. Wow! So community acquired necrotizing MRSA uh, in both lungs and in my bloodstream. And the doctor couldn't figure out how he even got it. He said this is really, really hard to get. But it is deadly. Anyway, he told me the 10-day mortality rate was 100%. And so the fact that I died is not surprising. I was supposed to, you know, this right. kills people. And I did die. And then I had a near-death experience where I had three conversations with God at the door between life and eternity. Mm -hmm. And that's a longer story, which I don't know if we have time to tell, but that spawned the book, Meeting God at the Door, mm -hmm. Conversations, Choices, and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience. Mm -hmm. And another book called The Book of Context, which is the contents of the second of the three conversations, mm -hmm. because it was a whole framework about how to change uh, our thinking. Mm -hmm. And then while ahead, we're sorry. talking about your books, where, where can people find them? Oh, I'm on Amazon. Okay. You know, one of the fun things about having a name like Kellen Flukiger is I'm really easy to find. <laughs> like there are two in the universe and the other one's my son. So if you put me on Google, there's thousands of hits from my executive career, YouTube channels, Facebook. I'm easy to find Google, uh, Amazon, Spotify, 
you know, I'm just, if you spell my name right, I am not difficult to find. So a near-death experience, there are those who don't believe that those are a thing. And then there are those who um, believe wholeheartedly that it is a thing. How did, how do you navigate that, uh, those, those two trains of thoughts, or do you even try to? I don't. I, I, I reported what happened to me. I mean, I died. Uh, I went, I crashed at first, crash card. They took me in the ICU. My heart stopped. And I was in a coma for 17, 17 days. And when I died, my, I came to in a gray room and the, I was horizontal like I was on the bed in the ICU and the walls and the floor and the ceiling were gray. I couldn't see them. I couldn't really see them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I couldn't tell how big the room was, but it was all gray. And over my left shoulder, I could see a door and, and there wasn't a door in it. It was a doorway and I wanted to be at the door. So then I was standing at the door and I'm leaning on the door jam on my right shoulder and I noticed the other side of the door was white, um, not streaming through, but it was white on that side and gray on my side. And I noticed that on the other side, leaning against the door jam, you know, looking at me was somebody else. And, and they were close enough to, you know, to touch. I mean, they're here and I'm here. And uh, he looked at me and he said, um, do you want to come home? And it took a millionth of a second for me to figure out where I was, what was happening, who I was talking to, what the question meant and what was going on. And it was um, as coaches, we use the phrase holding space. Mm -hmm. Well, there has never been any space in any universe held like it was in that space. Mm -hmm. Like I knew the question needed an answer, but there was no, expectation about what the answer should be or anything it was just there so we talked about it for a while and i thought about joy and the work that i was doing I and mean, it's 10 years since that other thing had happened and i just felt incomplete mm. and so after a while i said well i'm not done okay so i'm quite sure that that's when they were able to restart my heart the next day and i someone asked me how did you know it was the next day and the answer is i have no idea it was the <laughs> next day okay you just know stuff right so it was the next day i'm back at the door and we're talking again and the question of the previous day didn't come up because mm -hmm. i'd already decided that yeah that's right. done so then he said so what are you going to do so we talked about coaching and what i'd been doing and what i was trying to accomplish and i don't know if you've ever seen uh the Jodie Foster movie Contact. Yes. Which they yeah, have that alien thingamajig. Okay, well, that's for part of it, that's what it felt like. Like if I hadn't been in some kind of a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. Like the level of intensity of experience is we don't we don't have language to describe it. But after we talked and that experience, I came away with four absolute certainties. One is that every one of us, that there be no mistake. Every one of us is a divine being that was created intentionally. And there is no mistake about that. Mm -hmm. Number two, every one of us was given as we came here, gifts, talents. We were given gifts for this life. Number three, we had a mission and purpose that we not only agreed to, but we were stoked about mm -hmm. before we came here. And number four is all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. Mm. And so I said, well, since you might, you might say, well, if that's true, but in that situation, you don't say if, since that's true, <clears throat> I said, why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, mm -hmm. but the answer was four words because you don't believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I, uh, boom. Okay. Duh. Right. I didn't say duh, but it's like, okay, I get it. So what can I do? Oh, glad you asked. So then what came was a framework about how to work on deep-seated, long-standing beliefs. 
a process for changing them, not just telling people you need to change it, but a, a game, a process to work. And that's what I wrote in that book of context. And I could have put it in meeting God at the door, but then it would have been too big and it was separate. So I put it in there. And then <clears throat> I was the third day, uh, I was back at the door and this time I was excited. I was buzzing. I was repeating everything I'd learned about the book of context framework and all this stuff. And I'm just buzzing and we're back there at the door again. And they looked at me and it was again, one question. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. It's like I hyperventilated. Like, what do you mean? Am I sure? Did I miss something? Mm -hmm. Am I stupid? Am I biting off more than I can chew? Like, what do you mean? Am I sure? Well, like, and, and so we talked about it for a while. I don't know how my video turned off. Anyway, we talked about it for a while again. And finally I said every possible way I could think of the question because it was, I was just completely taken aback by the question that maybe I, whatever. And finally I said, I'm sure. Okay. And nothing was said, but the conversation ended with a finality that I knew we were done. Mm -hmm. So then some two weeks and change later, I came out of the coma and um, I'd lost 35 pounds and I couldn't wow. walk and I was completely atrophied. The, the disease had destroyed my lungs. Uh, they told me when I left the hospital, I asked them if I'd ever get my lung function back. And they said two years to never. And it's been three and a half years and I still have a wheeze and some other stuff, but <clears throat> it's a lot better and I'm doing okay. And I looked like a survivor from a concentration camp when I got out of there. I mean, hollowed out and I literally couldn't walk. Yeah. Uh, and but, so, but that was that. And, and wow. so that spawned those two books or that book, or those two book, meeting God at the door in the book of context. So as a life um, transformation coach, your, your goal is to coach people to purpose, prosperity, and joy. Yep. How did you, how did you narrow it down to those three select words, your mission? Uh, how did I narrow that down? <clears throat> When, you, when it takes too many things to explain something, it gets confusing and complicated. Yes. So I just made a choice and I said, I live the ultimate life. What is that? Well, a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy that you create by serving with your divine gifts. Mm -hmm. And that's my definition of the ultimate life. And it's funny because people come for all kinds of reasons. They want to make more money and they want to build business and it doesn't matter why they come. We can go hard pharmacy owner or owner of a marketing company and this and that all coming hardcore business. I'm owner of one of the largest sales organizations in the world. After two or three months, we're always working on the same thing. And that is how are you choosing to show up in the world. Who do you believe you are? Because that affects everything from first breath to last. And when you figure that out, you can have anything you want. Yeah. And so that's why, because that's the truth. You can have anything you want if you figure out who you need to be to have that. Yes. And then having is like, whatever, it just happens. Right. So how do you want to show up in your life? That's right. Yeah. For your, for your relationships, for yourself, you know, it has to do with self-love, all the things that I was such a, a poster child failing at. When you figure that out, you could creating things is not difficult mm -hmm. because you're now the person that creates that. Oh, well then I know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Kellen, what do you most want people to learn about from your life? That's not difficult. If there's anything to learn, it is no matter where you've been, no matter where you are now, no matter who has done what to you, no matter what has happened, it's never too late to take control of the levers of your life. Mm 
Stop blaming. Stop looking for excuses. Stop pretending that because X, Y, Z happened whenever it happened that you can't control things. Mm -hmm. Take control. Go get the help you need. Go find it. But put your fist down or your foot down or lift your smile up or your heart up and say, I am done with the old. I will create the new. I don't know how. I don't know what I got to do. I don't know where the road goes, but I know where this other road goes and I'm done with that one. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm going this way. It's never too late. Never too late to do that. I love that. Well, hey, it has been an honor to talk to you and I love your outlook on life and your mission. And I just wish, wish you every good fortune and, and, uh, and blessing on where you're going. And tell us again how people can uh, find out more about you, follow your work, get a hold of you. Where, where is the clearinghouse for all that information? Well, I have the website, kellenflukiger.com. With a name like Kellen Flukiger, it was not difficult to get my website. There was no competition. <laughs> so yeah, you can look me up, just spell the name right. You can Google me. You'll see web, you know, YouTube channels. Uh, you can connect with me on Facebook, on LinkedIn, anywhere you'd like. And if you'd like to have a conversation, I'm thrilled to do that. My, my goal is to help people if I can, but I can't until I know enough about you to know what you might want or need. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And again, I want to honor you for the work, the choice that you've made to add good to the world. Thank you. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.